0: Hillbilly Horror Stories presents... Eerie Encounters. From the very first day that Mary Lou and I bought our 220-year-old farmhouse in Connecticut, we felt a presence, as though someone was reading over our shoulders. After we moved in, it was very quickly apparent that the house came complete with a permanent resident, and somehow Mary Lou knew that it was a woman. Doors opened, closed, and sometimes slammed. Things often were not where we had left them. Footsteps frequently could be heard, especially upstairs in our daughter's bedroom. To us, this was a warm, joyful feeling, not at all adverse. A feeling of well-being filled us. Not everyone felt that way, however. A workman repairing the sill in the back of the house had access to the basement from outside, but the door inside at the top of the stairs into the house was locked. He wanted to get in, and he tried the door. No one was at home, and the door was indeed locked. But as he tried the door, he heard footsteps coming toward him across the living room floor. They stopped at the door. He asked to be let in, but he got no answer. He went back outside to see if one of us had come home, but there were no cars in the drive, no open doors or windows. He couldn't get in. He went back into the cellar and up the stairs. He called out to be let in. The footsteps left the door and went back across the living room floor. The workman left very quickly. A phone call to the previous occupants concerning several practical items, such as plumbing and construction repairs, ended up being very revealing. The conversation concluded, You do know that there is a ghost in that house, don't you? Yes, we certainly did. They had known it during their 20-odd years that they lived there and never had a bad experience. Only once did they see the spirit. The wife, her husband, and her daughter all saw a figure come down the stairs from the second floor. At first, they thought it was a child, very small. But on second look, they saw that it was an old woman with gray eyes, dressed in all gray. Then she just disappeared. So it was a woman, Mary Lou was right, but who was she? No one had a clue. In researching the history of the house, I learned that it was built between 1752 and 1777 by El Nathan Knapp and was sold father to son for three generations in a Knapp family. In 1882, Ira Knapp and his bride, thankful Barnum Knapp, took over the farm from his father, El Nathan Knapp Jr., Ira and Thankful were the last of the naps to live in the house. Ira died in 1871. Thankful, then 65 years old, refused to leave the house to live with one of her sons close by. She insisted on staying in her home alone, and so she did, until she was killed by a fall down the cellar steps in 1890. She was 85 years old. She was buried the next day beside Ira in the little cemetery of the church that they had joined in 1843. It was only about a half mile from their home. The NAP genealogy describes Thankful as very bright and active all her life, with gray eyes and very small, weighing only about 90 pounds. It all started to fit together. Thankful NAP is still in her house, and she's delightful. Mary Lou had been missing a bracelet for several weeks, and one day she simply said, Thankful, please help me find it. The next morning, it was on the kitchen floor in full view. One day, last winter, our daughter Lynn, she came home from school without her house key. She went into the pantry off the kitchen where our dogs can get out of the weather. She tried the door from the pantry into the kitchen. It was locked and chained. So she called out, Thankful. Please let me in. I'm cold. After petting the dog, she tried the door again and it flew open. We used to love watching our cat, Moby, play with thankful. He would jump up and spin around, pawing in the air, then run full speed into another room and back, changing direction suddenly several times. He finally ran smack into a wall and sat there staring at it, as if wondering why he couldn't go through it. After pawing the wall for a minute, he took off for a doorway leading to the other side of the wall and resumed chasing, jumping, and playing. On Sundays, Thankful is not present, or at least she's not active. Moby would walk from room to room all through the house, calling Meow to his little friend. It was a sad day for all of us when Moby died. Thankful became quiet for more than two weeks after Moby's death. One other time, Thankful became quiet for several days. That worried Mary Lou until she realized that it was January 22nd the date that Ira Knapp had died. He had been ill for several days before his death 117 years ago. We now go to that little church where Ira and Thankful were members. They are buried there, and Thankful's gravestone reads, Gone, but not forgotten. She certainly isn't forgotten. In fact, she really isn't gone. That story was sent from Thomas Lyle in Danbury, Connecticut. When my husband Mark and I were newlyweds 16 years ago, living in Charleston, South Carolina, Mark told me his dream was to raise a family in his hometown of Conway, which is 90 miles northeast. Since we both loved old houses, I asked Mark to show me the old section of Conway. We cruised past an abandoned, sorely neglected house with a yard that covered half the block. Oh, I said, who owns that spooky old place? Mark remembered it as being apartments and had no idea. Buy me that house, I'll move to Conway, I said. Five years later, Mark found a job in Conway, and in the same time, that spooky old house came on the market. It was built in 1864. It had been returned to a single-family home again. But the heating system for all 13 rooms consisted of four electric baseboards. For air conditioning, there were three window units. We considered it luxury camping, and we figured that the kids aged just three to ten months were too young to know better. It was livable and affordable. August 13th, two and a half months after we moved in, was our daughter's first birthday. I took the children to North Carolina to spend the night with my parents, but Mark was unable to go. That night, he was awakened by cries of a baby. It was so lifelike that he was at the crib before he remembered that he was home all by himself. A couple of weeks later, we were exploring our church's graveyard, and we found the family plot of the man who built our house. It was surrounded by an iron fence that was big enough for six, but occupied only by William Gerganus and his infant son, Norman, who had died in 1867 on August 13th. Further research showed that Gerganus came to Conway in 1860 at the age of 24, and he took a 17-year-old bride, Lucy. They had three children, two boys and a girl, as we would eventually have. William died at only 34 years old, and Lucy remarried a top-hat totem lawyer who left her destitute. In Chiron, North Carolina, we found the grave of William's oldest son, Hyman. He was buried at the age of 25. It took us five years to save enough money to begin the restoration, at which point we moved into a small rental house that adjoined our property. I was lying in bed one night wide awake next to my sleeping husband when a swirling white mist began to fill the room. I asked the apparition to let me know if it was William Gerganus by making my sleeping husband lift his hand. He did so. The following day, Carpenter's working on an upstairs wall found a time capsule. It contained the November 28, 1864 Wilmington Daily Journal, William Gerganus' signature, a letter from his brother, who is a Confederate soldier stationed near Wilmington, a leather ledger book containing many local names, and a pencil sketch of a uniformed man declaring, Mr. President, the people of my part of the country are starved and can't take it any longer, and I mean to lay the bill on the table. How did it happen that we found these items just then, especially since the House had undergone so many different alterations? When we moved back into the completed house in November of 1999, our 11-year-old son Luke claimed the upstairs with the largest bedroom in the house, full bath, study, and a music playroom as his personal domain. He lived large and loved it until one day at 6 a.m. when he returned from the bathroom to see a dark-haired, bearded man sitting on the twin bed next to his, looking out the window. The man turned to Luke, smiled, and disappeared. Luke immediately ran downstairs and jumped in bed with his sister. I tried to convince Luke that William is our guardian angel and that he means no harm, but not surprisingly, he slept downstairs next to his little brother for the next couple of months. He eventually went back upstairs and stayed as long as I left a light on in the next room. We felt comforted thinking that William must have been happy with our family in his house. That story is from Leslie Wilson in Conway, South Carolina. When I first encountered spirits in my own home, I was unnerved and also doubtful of my sanity. After all... If I were crazy enough to tackle a third restoration project in nine years, then maybe I could be crazy in other ways as well. However, time and an open mind have helped me accept and enjoy these little meetings between the past and the present. After all, a home would never really be a home without these unexplainables. The story goes back to August of 1979. We moved into a three-story 1857 brick Victorian to begin our third and most ambitious restoration. The structure had been built as a gracious home for a state senator, and then served as a doctor's home and an office, a school superintendent's house, a restaurant, and finally for 25 years as a nursing home. It stood unattended for two years before we purchased it. Needless to say, there was, and still is, a great deal to be done. However, by September of 1979, we considered ourselves fortunate to have repaired the roof and the furnace, replaced missing windows, and installed a working kitchen. Over the weekend, we had ripped out a containment wall surrounding the carved mahogany staircase in the front hallways. That particular morning, my husband had gone to the next town where he taught school, and I was half-heartedly contemplating painting one of the 15-foot-tall ceilings when the phone rang. As I told my college friend of our progress, I noticed that the chandelier was flashing on and off through the transom and over the door leading into the formal parlor. I commented to her about the odd occurrence, wondering about the competency of the electrician who had recently inspected and approved all the wiring. She, on the other hand, had begun to worry that someone had come in through one of the eight exterior doors and was playing a nasty trick on me. Nothing would calm her except that I go immediately and investigate, while she listened in case something truly disastrous was happening. As luck would have it, the closest doorway was blocked with ladders and tools. Therefore, I took the more circuitous route through the dining room into an added room and down the front hall. My two schnauzers trotted along, one on either side of me, as I entered the hallway. Suddenly, the door between the hall and the parlor literally flew open, as if a gust of wind had pushed it open. Both dogs began to whimper and backed up as very distinct heavy footsteps came toward us. There was positively nothing to be seen, and I searched my mind for a logical explanation as the dogs turned tail and deserted me. All logical thoughts left me as an icy air encircled me and the footsteps continued past me, only to die in the doorway that I had just used. I was very shaken, but I did carefully inspect the parlor. All the windows were sealed tight and all the lights were off. For several days, I was the victim of my husband and friends teasing about ghosts and strange noises. In fact, I was beginning to believe that I'd been the victim of my own overactive imagination. That's when my husband and I were awakened in the pre-dawn by the explosive sound of shattering glass. Not a small tinkling, but a massive crash. With visions of tree limbs coming through the 14-foot windows on the first floor, we raced down only to find that everything was exactly as it should be. Then we ran back to the second floor to inspect the windows and antique mirrors, and finally the third floor, where once again, everything was intact. In the daylight, we explored the yard around the house, and finally the street for broken glass. In cautious questioning, we determined that no one else in the village had heard anything. Since that time, we experienced the same phenomenon two or three times a year, and haven't yet to find a reason for it. The footsteps in the front hall continued until we removed the room that was added to the rear of it and restored the door that had hung there originally. We then found ourselves listening for what had become over the last few months an almost pleasant sound. But upon completion of the former parlor, we found a new friend who liked to serenade us with soft tunes. If what we have since discovered is true, then perhaps the senator who built the house is back playing his beloved harpsichord as he once did for his family and friends in that very room. Perhaps the most memorable and least explainable experience during our residence was my encounter with the barefoot boy. Once again, I had been painting, a never-ending task, it seems. After an extended period of time, I began to wonder what had become of my husband. He had gone to the basement for just a minute. In all honesty, I disliked the basement area intensely, With its eerily trickling spring, a Victorian luxury, and a mausoleum-like silence, I loathed the thought of anyone being there for more than a few minutes. As I rounded the corner into the kitchen, a startled boy of about eight stood looking straight at me. He was clad in a too-large, grayish shirt, faded coveralls, and had bare, wet feet. I gasped and he picked up an unusually cumbersome lantern, and began backing toward the outside door. As he backed, he also began to fade. Fade is really the only word that describes what happened to him. At that moment, my husband burst into the kitchen, carrying a rusted lantern that he had unearthed in the basement. It was identical to the one that the boy had been carrying. Later, a museum curator identified it as a type of hanging oil lantern that was found in churches or meeting halls, and seldom carried, as it was awkward to handle and easily blown out. We can find no explanation for it being buried in the basement, unless, of course, some little boy did it a century ago. Living in a village founded in 1803, where most of the buildings were erected between that time and 1900, ours is not the only home with unseen guests. And once you learn to accept those glimpses into the past as a rare favor, life in an old house becomes so much more delightful. A story was sent from Ruth Ann Dixon in Old Washington, Ohio. You have been listening to Hillbilly Horror Stories presents Eerie Encounters. If you have an eerie encounter that you would like read on the show, please send it to hillbillyhorrorstories at gmail.com.